The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Good morning, church. I would say happy fall, but I've been in South Carolina too long. Uh, I know this is just the first of probably a few fake falls that will be back in flip-flops and sweating in no time at all. This morning, we're going to be in Romans 12, so I invite you to turn there. We're going to, this is week three of our You Asked For It sermon series. Our topic this morning is, What About God's Will? Now, throughout this sermon series, we're, we're making it our aim to interact with you. You, you might hear something that will trigger a question or a thought in the app or on our website, tcc.sc, there's going to be a button that says, I have questions or something to that effect. You can submit your questions there. It's getting real up here. You can submit your questions there, and every Sunday afternoon, the, the, whoever preached that morning will record a video addressing some of those questions. So that's going to be my task this afternoon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will begin in Romans 12. Father, we thank you for the life that we have in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gift of being able to gather together as brothers and sisters, adopted sons and daughters. Thank you for making us your own. We pray this morning you would speak to us from your word, that we would have ears to hear. Father, that you would give us the ability to put into action what we hear this morning. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So when we're talking about the will of God, the question is not, does God lead his people? The question is, how does he lead his people? Think through some very well-known passages. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. John 10, Jesus says, I am that good shepherd and I lead my sheep. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we have to be on the same page that we're, we're not asking the question, does God lead his people? We're asking the question, how does he do so? So let's turn to to Romans 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. And if you're a note taker, Paul structures this passage with four very clear movements. He's going to identify foundation. He's going to give us motivation. He's going to give us command and then result. So I'm going to follow through with that fourfold pattern. First, foundation. And we'll read the verse together. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Foundation. He begins with the word, therefore. Now, we're at chapter 12, and he has a lot 
summarized in Therefore, namely chapters 1 through 11, where he has been developing and building an argument where he's going to say that God is the creator of us all and that humanity universally, without exception, has chosen the creation over the creator, that in us there is nothing good, that we're all sinners, that we all have as the head of our family tree, Adam. And by virtue of being in his family tree, what we have awaiting us as an inheritance is sin and death. But he's going to say the promise comes by faith, that it's never through works, and that Jesus is a far better head of a family tree, that when we are in his family, we have life, and that Jesus has not loved in mere sentiment, but he's loved in action. He's demonstrated his love by laying down his life, and though we've deserved death, we have the gift of God is life in Jesus Christ, and that new life is then marked by a freedom from slavery to sin. Now we're actually slaves to righteousness. And when God the Father looks upon us, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. Therefore, he can justly and truthfully say there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And our union with Christ is so real and so close that there's nothing that can separate us from it, not even death. Then if God is for us, who can be against us? And this God that's so strong and powerful, he's also merciful. That, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And because God is so, so free in giving his love, that he calls his sons and daughters to go to faraway lands, to go to difficult places where Jesus is not known and his name his, is never uh, honored and revered so that more people can call upon him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never heard that. Like, I don't want to go anymore. If, you, if you've never heard the truth that, that Jesus loves sinners, consider him this morning. Jesus is the authority above all authorities. He is the king of kings. But when he describes himself, when he describes his own heart, he says it's, Gentle and lowly. It's not harsh and stern. Jesus loves sinners. There is a way for you to know today that your sins can be forgiven, that you can be made right with God. I invite you if, you, if you were invited by a friend, talk to them today about what it means to trust in Jesus. I'll be at the tent at the back after the service. I would love to speak to you. So what does Paul have in mind when he says, therefore, he has the gospel in mind. The gospel is the foundation of this passage. He has the good news. Secondly, motivation. The gospel is our foundation. What is our motivation? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, Paul's saying, before I tell you what you need to do, you need to consider the backdrop of God's mercy. I need you to, to put on these glasses where you're looking through the lens of God's mercy to inform how you hear me command you, how, how you see all that's around you. I need you to, to remember that, that God has shown himself to be merciful. 
Christianity is unlike every other world religion. Every world religion says, if you do this, then you get God's favor. You get God's mercy. But, but Christianity flips it on its head. Christian, because you have received God's mercy, because you already are under the favor of God, therefore, obey what the scriptures say. So our motivation must be the mercy of God. Therefore, because we've received so much, because we've been forgiven greatly, we can obey him. Thirdly, we've seen foundation, we've seen motivation. Thirdly, let's look at command. The, the end of verse 1 and the start of verse 2. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In this section, Paul's going to give us three commands to obey. The first one is to truly worship. How do you do that? You do that by giving yourself as a sacrifice. And what a strange sacrifice it is. Because this sacrifice is presented there on the altar, but then it, it's living. It gets up and goes on. So what, what is it that God wants? What is it that pleases him? When we give our whole selves over to God. When we give all that we have to him. We are not Pharisees that, that focus on the outside and neglect the inside. We give ourselves wholly over to God. When I was in seminary, there was a professor on campus named Dr. Carson. No relation. Um, Dr. Carson was blind. And everyone that had his classes would say the same thing, that the man was brilliant. That he would get up to lecture his students in the Bible, and he would say, now turn to chapter and verse, and then he would recite to them the passage. He would teach them from memory. Dr. Carson was also quite vocal during chapel services. One day there was a, a pastor that came in and, and he's preaching on being true to God, giving God our best, giving God our everything. And he's trying to illustrate his point. He said, now, now young men, could you imagine if you had your eyes set on some young lady and after extended period of time of getting to know her, you decide she's the one. So you go and you buy a ring and, and you get down on one knee and you say, honey, I love you. Will you love me the rest of your life? Will you be faithful to me? And what would you say if she said, yes, I love you. And I will love you 364 days a year. And I'll be faithful to you 364 days a year. Well, well, the pastor, he's, what he's trying to do is, you know, create in us the listeners list mm, yeah that's that's deep well dr carson wasn't having it because as soon as he heard the question and then said what would you say dr carson said bye that's the point right we we do not want 99 percent faithfulness in our spouse we do not want 99 percent love from our spouse and so paul says a true exercise in, in worship is giving your whole self over to the Lord, to not hold back anything. 
Second command is do not be conformed. There is a common way of thinking and believing in this age. And this way of thinking is persuasive because it is pervasive. It is everywhere. The Bible describes it as the wisdom of the world, and it's set up as contrary to God. It is set up as being opposed to God. Without intentional effort to avoid us, this way of thinking conforms. It has pressure. It squeezes us to mold us to get in line with the way the rest of the world thinks. Part of why this teaching is so persuasive and pervasive is because the teacher has a megaphone. This teacher is secular culture. It's all around us. When we do not seek to be actively opposed to it, we will be persuaded by it. But we need not bury our heads in the sand because of the third command. We're told to truly worship. We're told to not be conformed. Thirdly, we're told to be transformed. The way to avoid being passively conformed by the, the age of this, this world is, is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that everyone in Christ is a, is a new creation. Colossians 3.10 says that we are being renewed in the image of Jesus. Essentially, this call to be renewed in mind is to become what you already are. Become what you already are. Paul says to the Corinthian church, you're already holy, so live in a holy manner. Hebrews 10 says Paul that Jesus has perfected forever those who are being perfected. We're going to talk more about what this means, but in short, it's a work of the Spirit. Titus 3, 2 Corinthians 3, the, the Spirit is at work in us, and when we we can join with the Spirit when we are actively seeking out the glory of God in the Scriptures, when we're beholding the supremacy and beauty of Christ in the Gospel, we are joining with Him in that. So we've talked about foundation, motivation, command. Fourthly, what's the result? What's the result? Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that... Here's the result. You may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The outcome of the renewed mind is the ability to discern God's will. Now think through your, your average day. How many hundreds or even thousands of decisions do you make in a given day? So the prospect of knowing how to discern God's will should get us fired up. It should thrill us. Now, there's a lot of misconception. There are multiple layers of misconception around the will of God. There's the misconception of the Easter egg. Sometimes people view the will of God like God is, has hidden it from us. How does that paint the picture of God? He's, he's miserly. He's holding back. He doesn't really want us to have his best. He's like that old guy in the insurance commercial with the fishing rod and the dollar bill at the end, and he's just... Oh, almost had it that time. That's a misconception. There's the misconception of the reverse lottery ticket. Sometimes people say, I don't want to know the, the will of God because as, as soon as I do, he's going to call me to move to Timbuktu and, and never come back to the United States. Like, this is a misconception. There's the misconception of the self-fulfilled 
prophecy, people have the tendency to think that God's will is always and only leading to a place of our personal flourishing. So if we make a decision and it doesn't go well for us, then the prophecy is self-fulfilled that, I, well, obviously I was outside of God's will here. But if we make a decision and it does go well for us, then, well, clearly I was in God's will for this decision. Another misconception is that the, the idea of the, the bullseye with, with multiple gradations of, of layers there, that, that people will say that, they'll even take Romans 12 and say that God has a good will and he has a pleasing will and he has a perfect will. And, and I see some of you shaking your heads, high five, well done. We're going to reject that. It's wrong that some people say that it's okay to, to kind of get off track on minor decisions, but my goodness, if you go to the wrong college or if you declare the wrong major or you go into the wrong vocation, you, you marry the wrong person or have the wrong number of kids, then you're off track and you're never really going to be able to get back into God's perfect will. We have to reject all of these things. So what, what does Paul have in mind when he says that when we have our minds renewed, that we will be able to discern God's will. The Bible talks about God's will in two different senses. Okay, the first sense of God's will is his sovereign will. This is everything that God has eternally decreed. His master plan for the universe is everything that he said will certainly come to pass. And we know that it will come to pass because he is the one that will accomplish it. There are dozens of verses. I'll share three that support this idea. Psalm 135.6. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. Daniel 4.34 and 35. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Ephesians 1.11, in him we have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. He does what he pleases. There is no one that can stop him or question him. He's working all things together for the purpose of his will. His sovereign will will certainly come to pass. because it, And it is not dependent upon whether we believe it or not, whether we participate in it or not, anything we do. The second sense of God's will that's talked about in Scripture is God's moral will, or maybe you could describe it as his will of command. This refers to the moral standard that God has placed upon his creation. 1 John 2, whoever does the will of God abides forever. It implies that not everyone does the will of God. 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, but not all repent. God's will of command is different than the sovereign will because sometimes it's fulfilled and kept and sometimes it's not. God is not the agent of his moral will. We are. So how do these two work together? How do they relate? You can think about it 
you can think of God's sovereign will as a set of mighty railroad tracks. Two iron rails that are strong, that are immovable, but they are moving in a specific direction bound for a specific destination. And on these iron rails, there's a giant boxcar. And we, his, his creation, we are in his boxcar. That within this boxcar, he said, these are the rules of how I want my creation to, to function. These are, how, these are the ways I want you to live and operate. But things go crazy in the boxcar because it's up to us. We keep that will of command sometimes, but our track record is, is, is far worse than it is good. And yet, God is still taking, his, taking that boxcar to a specific destination because he is sovereign. So we've seen our, the foundation, motivation, command, and results. So how do we get about making godly decisions? How is it that we determine his will for us? Let me give you three points of application. Three points of application. The first one is to prioritize character. We need to prioritize character. It, it's a good question to ask, what does God want me to do? A far better question to ask is, who does God want me to be? God is far more concerned with who we are becoming than with what we are doing. Think through every interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees in the Gospels. He, he, does, not, uh, he does not blister them because what they're doing is wrong. What, what they're found doing is, is praying and giving and serving. He blisters them because they're doing it for the wrong motivation. They don't have the mercy of God as the backdrop. They have their own glory as their purpose. Think through the passages in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus where, where Paul's outlining the qualifications of a pastor or a deacon. They're, they're all about character. We need to be careful. We need to tend to our souls. Paul says to Timothy, to watch your life and doctrine carefully. In Song of Solomon, he says, you need to be careful. Don't let the little foxes come into the garden. Well, what's the reason for that? You know, we've, Holly and I have been in our house just up here for, um, this month is five years. And I think we've had a garden there uh, four summers in a row. And what we've found is that having a garden is really hard. Because grass and weeds and all sorts of things that we did not plant creep into the garden. And it's, it's really hard. It's a lot of work to stay on top of it. And if you get behind, it starts to grow more and more. And it, our track record has been by the end of the summer, we're just like, oh, man, we're tired. And so we'll have, you know, hip-high grass in the garden. And at that point, it's like it's so much work, it's, it's tough to, to really get it all rooted out. This is, this is the, the danger for us. We, if we neglect character, the consequences can be tragic. The New Testament often talks about 
our conscience, where the, the goal for Christians is to have a, a good conscience and a clear conscience. But there are other ways that the conscience can be described. In uh, 1 Timothy 4, Paul's going to talk about the, the seared conscience of a liar. That you guys that are uh, aficionados of grilling, how do you cook a good steak? Well, first you sear it. You, you give it that, that thick crust so that the juice stays within. Well, that is a tragic description of your soul, that you become numb, that you become unfeeling if your conscience, if your soul becomes seared. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul names names. He says to Timothy, you need to stay away from Alexander and Hymenaeus because they They've made a shipwreck of their faith because they've rejected a good conscience. In Titus 1, there's the description of a defiled conscience, that your compass is all out of whack. You, you don't even know how to do the right things because your conscience is defiled. But Jesus is greater. In Hebrews 9... The author's talking about how Jesus' sacrifice is so much better than that of, the, of bulls and goats. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he will cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. And again in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed and pure water. It is vital that we seek to develop Christ-like character. If we do, we're well on our way to seeing our minds being renewed. When we see that, that the, we see that the change happens within us and it produces the kind of discernment that we need to know God's will. So we need to prioritize character. Second application, we need to obey the word. The will of God must never be about information, but about obedience. We are never told to discover God's will for our lives. We're told to seek out wisdom. We're told to seek the kingdom of God. We're, we're told to, to seek out, uh, we're not told to seek out after food because God knows what we need. We're told that that it's only an evil and adulterous generation that seeks out these signs. We're not told to seek out God's will. Historically, believers have emphasized following God's will rather than discovering it. Psalm 143.10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me on level ground. There are a handful of verses in the New Testament that explicitly say, this is God's will. 1 Timothy 2, God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't be foolish, but understand, know what the will of God is to be filled with the Spirit. 1 Timothy 4, for this is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. James 4, it's God's will that we are submissive to authority. 1 Peter 4, sometimes suffering is according to God's will. 1 Thessalonians 5, it is God's will that we are thankful. The very first step in godly decision making 
is to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? Does the scripture speak to this issue explicitly or in principle? And when our opinion does not square with what the, teacher, with what, what the scripture teaches, we have to humble ourselves under the word. But we must not think of Scripture as some indifferent, cold authority that just is over us. Rather, we should look to the Word as the gracious gift of God meant to lead us to greater joy and satisfaction when we are living life according to God's principle. Prioritize character. Secondly, obey the Word. Thirdly, build wisdom. Church, wisdom is not inside of us. We have to look outside to find wisdom. We find it in Scripture. God is revealed in Scripture. When Scripture is rightly applied, it leads to wisdom. Wisdom leads then to good decision-making. We find wisdom in, in prayer when we go to the Lord asking Him to change our selfish desires into his own desires, when we pray for God to give us understanding and wisdom and discernment, freely confessing that we don't have the answers within ourselves, but we cling to him. We recognize that wisdom begins with that right orientation before him when we are fearing the Lord. Wisdom's found in, in counsel of godly believers. If we operate under the principle that we can just trust our own heart or operate under the principle that we know best, it is short-sighted and foolish. Yet, when we are rightly prioritizing the develop, development of our character before God, and we, when we are committed to following the commands of Scripture and we're aiming to grow in wisdom, then there's great freedom from the Lord in our decision-making. By God's grace, His people will develop a pattern of godly decisions. To close, my, my hope and prayer for us, church, is that we would be able to say with Augustine, love God and do as you please. I pray that we discover that freedom in recognizing that God is, is sovereign and that we can trust that he will accomplish his purposes, that when we make it our aim to truly worship the Lord by giving him everything, that by being transformed in our minds and motivated by his mercy and seeking to have our character shaped to be like Jesus, that when we're committing to obey his word and, and grow in wisdom, that we'll see that, that loving God means loving his word and growing to be like Jesus and, and keeping his word. And, and, and loving God means growing in godly wisdom. Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your spirit. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you that you are for us, that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. That Jesus is our great redeemer. Father, we pray that you would show yourself kind and gracious and merciful to us that we would be mindful of these gospel truths, that we would be motivated by your mercy, that we who have received much, we who have would honor you rightly, would commit to keeping your word, that we would commit to pursuing 
Christ-like character, that, Father, that we would consistently humble ourselves before you and that you would build it. Lord, we desperately need you in this task. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the promise to never leave us or forsake us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.